0: So I would imagine by now, many or perhaps even all of you here have settled into kind of a rhythm among the various meditations that I've introduced over the last five weeks. I think you've probably found, I think all of you, one or more methods that you really connect with, helpful, quite familiar with getting some confidence in. (coughs) So what I'd like to suggest for this session they said it will be a silent session, so no need to record. And one possibility would be for the first, more or less the half, first half of the session, any of the methods of shamatha you really like to really uh, achieve the best approximation you can of meditative equipoise, right? So then you can see straight. You can. The mind functions well. And then during the latter half of the session, again, more or less, then engage in the practice of tonglen, um, but do it in that kind of free flow style that is not necessarily choosing deliberately choosing one individual or a group of individuals But just see where your attention roams and that a light and practice as we've done before. Okay, so let's have one uh, one silent session no guidance and no recording So we'll return to the text. We now have the next aphorism, which in terms of the kind of classification or outline uh, is referred to as post-meditative yoga. And so in terms of your practice when you're off the cushion, not formally practicing, simply engaging with your life. And the aphorism here is whatever you encounter, immediately apply it to meditation. In other words, try to break down that kind of sharp distinction between, oh, I can only practice two hours a day or 40 minutes a day because I have so many, I have, I have my job, I have family, I have many r- obligations, need to take care of my mother or what have you. So many other things, you know, demanding our time. And having some sense that there's a sharp division. Oh, today I was able to practice a little bit more. I was able to practice an hour and a half instead of hour. It's very easy to slip into that kind of syndrome. And the, really the whole spirit of the lojong, of this mind training, is to transform everything. You know? Not to have this kind of tug-of-war between family, job, and so forth and so on, kind of the, the wor- your socially engaged world and your Dharma practice, and feel this is some com- something of tug-of-war, like, okay, how much shall I sacrifice and so forth, but see if you can blend it, blend it, integrate it. In fact, one of you came in a, in a, in a personal meeting with me some time ago, I like to keep this vague. When I refer to any of your meetings, it's always anonymous, so you'd have no idea who I'm referring to. And I was just commenting that this, this person said that he or she, let's say, you know, it's going to be a she, uh, would really like to go into retreat, but maybe it feels, a, you know, long term retreat, but may, maybe feels a bit premature because it doesn't have that much grounding in Dharma yet. And I fully agreed. And that is a really good transition now this for everybody. You know, a really good transition. When one is anticipating one day, I'd really like to go into really sustained practice. This was a good boot camp, you know, uh, to really learn how to do the practices, but then to really venture in, you know, to go on a a long campaign. Um, Then what I would generally encourage is before venturing into that, I mean, going off for a week, two weeks, a month, all very good. But in terms of longer, like six months, a year, or even longer than that, As a preparation for that, to give your kind of optimize the chances that your experience in solitude is going to be really beneficial, the best possible preparation for that is Lojong, it's the seven point mind training. Of course, with the shamatha, ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta, but then really learning how, again, as if you're a spiritual alchemist, learning how very specifically from situation to situation, how do you transform this into Dharma? How do you transform this? And so you have this sense that throughout the course of the day, from the, fr- from the moment you wake up, and then you're doing the mundane things, like you know taking a shower, brushing your teeth, if you shave, you shave, that kind of stuff, that all of this is part of your Dharma practice. And then you meet very pleasant people, and that's part of your pra- Dharma practice. And you have to do just some grunt work, work that you don't really want to do, but needs to be done. And that's part of your practice. And then the difficulties, adversities, and you just know you've developed a rich enough understanding of Dharma that you feel that... Just having an ongoing practice of Dharma and your formal session is just kind of like a, like a magnifying glass where you're practicing Dharma and that's all you're doing, but not so much practical application. When you see that you've gotten to that point in your life where it's almost like you're just holding hands with Dharma all the time, or as Dom Dumba says, when your mind becomes Dharma, it's not even something you're picking up and then putting down, practicing and then not practicing, but really there's just ongoing flow. Of a thorough integration of your mind with Dharma, when you feel that you're just—that's kind of like it's like oil and paper—that your Dharma has just saturated your life, then that's a really good point at which to make a rather smooth transition over into long-term retreat. Because you feel, well, I was already practicing full time. Now I'm just practicing full time in a simpler environment, right? That that then it will very likely go well. But if you make a very abrupt transition, of just trying to carve out a little bit of time but saving money and finding your hut and doing all the outside stuff of preparation for retreat but not really so much the inside then you may be in for a little bit of a rude awakening that uh, meditation isn't how do you say that is going into retreat isn't always idyllic. So there we are. So whenever you encounter immediately apply it to meditation and the emphasis here in terms of the commentary is really especially dealing with Adversity, anything that's anything is unpleasant, uh, whether it's finding that uh, you know, you're out of toothpaste, that's pretty low-key, uh, and then now what I do? You know, what do you do, with your finger or what? Uh, to, you know, then we have this whole bandwidth from, that's kind of a bummer, my toothpaste is gone. I thought I had a little bit more, to you know, the large adversities that strike on occasion. Uh, learning how to transform all of them into practice. So, for example, in cases of illness, Getting mugged, getting robbed, for example. And all other misfortunes and disappointments. One of the great commentaries, I think this is from Sejibua, says Consider the whole world in this way, so cultivate, consider that the whole world is this way, so cultivate compassion. Imagine taking on everyone else's suffering in addition to your own. And that is, here's just a generalization. Um, He'll give you the metaphor I like a lot, and I think I've used it already, but I like it a lot, so I'm going to use it twice. Remember the the analogy of having a little cup of water versus a swimming pool? Remember that? And you drop a pebble in a little little cup of water that's filled almost to the brim, and you drop a pebble in it, and it creates a big disturbance. I mean, it probably splashes over the edge, and if you were a little creature inside that, it would be like a tsunami. Your whole world is topsy-hervy. It's terrible. This is a catastrophe. What's happening to my world? Because everything now is all awash and turbulent and upsetting. Right? If you were a little tiny creature living inside that cup, in which you just dropped the pebble, and now imagine a swimming pool, or something larger. Swimming pool is fine, and imagine dropping dropping that same pebble into the swimming pool. Right? Same pebble, same water. Water is water, but we know the effect on the swimming pool is kind of like, did something happen? You know? And the analogy here, I think I like it. I think it's a good one, is that insofar as our attention, throughout the co- our attention throughout the course of the day, not when we're just mindfulness of breathing or doing a little bit of Donglen now and then, doing some kind of formal practices on the cushion, but throughout the course of the day, insofar as what we're attending to, and especially what we're thinking about, what we're considering, hoping and fearing, desiring and not desiring, insofar as that really rotates around, I me mean mine, what do I want? My stuff, mine, how can I get what I want, how can I avoid what I want, me and my, and my family and, and my, my business and, and my, my community, my, general, my extended family, my, 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 insofar as it's there, insofar as we're really focusing on self and maybe a little nucleus of people that we identify strongly, then whatever comes up, any kind of adversity, even, oh, my toothpaste is out, you know, Pebble dropped into a cup. Ah oh, no, that means I'm gonna have bad breath all day. That's oh, man, jeez, I don't have time, and ah oh, jeez, why did it happen to me? Why didn't my wife do something about this? She'd been look at She's supposed to be looking after me. Doggone it. Man, you know, tsunami of out of toothpaste. You know, and we start feeling sorry. And so, I'm, and obviously, that's that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Not too many people have a trauma and they run out of toothpaste. But you get the idea. right? If you're living in a little cup of I, me, mind, and you don't have any toothpaste, well, that means your whole world doesn't have toothpaste. Nobody in your world has toothpaste. The world is out of toothpaste. This means the whole world's going to have bad breath, and their teeth will be falling out, decaying, and probably have to use dentures when they get to 35. Whereas, it's a very practical thing. Simply, what are you attending to? What are you attending to? To what extent are you not just attending to other people with respect to what can you do for me, what might you do against me, what can you do, etc.? In other words, the I-it relationship with everybody, which is very easy to do, um, but actually entering into this I-U relationship. So as we're engaging with human beings, animals, just every sentient being around us, and really attending to them as someone looking back, I had an interesting experience just just recently with somebody who came in for a meeting, and we we're just talking about something, just kind of settling the gaze. And I said, well, OK, I'll, I'll, if I look down at your knees, then it's easy for me to rest my awareness in space. Cause I, and it was very simple. I, I kind of figured out why. If, 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 ever, if we've ever sat quietly in one of my, man, my meetings with you, and we meditate, you'll notice my eyes go down. I don't meditate when my eyes are gazing at you, unless, I, unless you're very much part of my meditation at that time. right? But my, 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 my eyes go down to your knees. They just drop, they just, just naturally. Then there's no competition. And for a very simple reason, I don't have a sense that your knees are looking back. You know, your your knees are an it. Whereas when I gaze at your face, I mean, there it is. I mean, I can't look at your face and feel it's an it. I mean, really, how can you, I mean, if you're looking right in a person's eyes, how could, of course you can, oh, you're attractive, you're unattractive, you can do that. But um, I don't find it all that easy, frankly, when you're looking in somebody's face. I mean, it's so obvious. There's somebody looking back right? And that has to be part of your reality. Look at their knee and no big deal. There's a knee. Or, or I'm just looking at clothes. Well, clothes are certainly an it. And so, as we're attending to others, in a, in a, poetically speaking, if we're always looking into their eyes. Eyes are eyes. One's, one's body may be not particularly attractive, but we're looking into the eyes. That's actually a different set. It's a different, different thing, isn't it? And the eyes don't get the, the the body just generally gets more, how say, less sexually attractive as we get older, if we ever were sexually attractive at all. So the body gets less appealing, just as an object, less attractive. But you look into the eyes, and I don't see much of that. I don't see much of that at all. Yeah, I don't know. That that's my experience. Is but yours, Carmen, here, thirty years old. But when you're sixty, I think your eyes will look pretty much the same. You know. And if that's what you're really attending to, then you're not probably thinking oh pretty eyes unpretty eyes ordinary eyes you're looking at it, you have a sense of the windows of the soul somebody's looking back you know and so simple point i don't want to belabor this too much but coming back to the swimming pool throughout the course of the day if we're really attending to others as people who are looking back and of course not only human beings sentient beings looking back and not only looking back but also feeling back that is Hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, so much, so similar to our own. You know? If that's factoring in, come back to the, the motto, for the moment what we attend to is reality. If really attending frequently throughout the course of the day to other sentient beings as subjects like our own, then there it is, it's so simple. It becomes part of our reality. We linger upon it, we dwell upon it, it becomes real for us. So when, you fact, when we factor that person in, it's not just what can this person do for me and what might this person do against me, but these are people like myself. And so then, when some calamity strikes, like I'm out of new, I'm, I'm out of toothpaste, that's one person out of a whole bunch of people I know. Most people have toothpaste, so what's the big deal? You know, get some salt water, rinse your mouth out, and you know, carry on. <laughs> you know, big deal. But that's it. It's a, such a simple thing. Is attend closely to others. Your will gets larger. Which means when the stone adver- of adversity drops into the pool of your mind, it'll be dropping into a swimming pool. It'll be the same, spo- be the same adversity and the same mind that's being dropped in, but your mind is larger. Right? You're not small-minded. you're large-minded. Very practical, very practical. So that's what he's getting at here. When you experience an adversity that one's got me so trivial, trivial it is kind of laughable but other ones are not. Get a little, a little bit ill. Get a bit, have a bit of stomach problem or what have you. That's not, nothing to laugh about. Um, but then consider, you know, broaden the mind. I mean, you know, deliberately expand your mind from your teacup to a swimming pool, to, to a lake, to an ocean. And then consider, samsara's kind of a tough place. You know, uh, If we consider that for us sentient beings, if we just focus on the human realm for the time being, Uh, insofar as, or for as long as, uh, or to the extent that, our minds are still dominated by craving, hostility, and delusion, then we should expect to have, expect that there's going to be a lot of problems in life. Expect it. Not like we're inviting it in, but consider this as normal. That is, if if insofar as, it's a gradient, but insofar as the mind is still prone to this kind of ego grasping, to craving, to hostility, self-centeredness, reification of all phenomena. And we have habituation of various types of unwholesome behavior, just sheer momentum, uh, to expect, well, never mind that. I'm, I'm thinking life is quite wonderful, and, and fate will sw- smile upon me. And isn't life grand? And let's hope we get lucky. You know, I think it's these false expectations that give rise to a lot of excess suffering. What he's saying here is adversity is really common. It's very normal. And it happens when you're all set up for it, because of your own mental afflictions and habitual propensities for an unwholesome behavior, then expect conflict. It's normal. It's what happens. If you're an arhat, you can expect a very different kind of world. If you're a bodhisattva, you can expect a very different kind of world. Let alone, if you're an accomplished vajrayana master of vidyadhara with direct realization of rikpa, well, okay then Then you're going to be living, you know, you'll be the center of your mandala, and that's going to be a much nicer mandala. But insofar as your mind is still still heavily encumbered by, toxic, with these mental afflictions. Then know that mental afflictions are just, that's kind of like what happens. And you're not alone. And then you consider, my goodness, wow, you mean like most people are this way? Most people have these same type of anxieties and troubles and frustrations and disappointments, and they're also getting old and getting sick and they die. And so what seemed like a big deal for your little teacup, when you expand it voluntarily, Voluntarily, then your little bit of disturbance here goes big, takes in the world, and it becomes big compassion. So a little little perturbation becomes big compassion. Well, may we all be free. May we all be free. So that's what he's getting at there. It's a very rich area. Do the same in, in the events of mental afflictions arising in your mind, imagining others to be freed from those afflictions and abiding in joy. So clearly we have adversities that come to us seemingly from outside. Uh, so we get sick. Somebody robs us of something. Somebody is very unkind to us, or belligerent, or what have you. So that happens. But then there are other kinds, what I, some kind of call genuine unhappiness that is completely, really, without external catalyst, arises simply because of the perturbations of our own mind. I think we all know about those well, since we're living in such a pleasant environment, so little so here in this little utopia, I mean, it's a pretty good approximation. So little unpleasant is happening from outside. I mean, you have to really kind of look with eagle eyes. OK, is anything nasty happening out there? To me, you know, it's hard to find in this little protected environment. And that makes it really good, because on your tw- 22 hours a day that you're on your own, if you're having any kind of disturbances, any kind of unhappiness, you know who owns it. You know where it came from, not the staff. I'm a pretty good target, so you can take a few pot shots at me if you like. But besides that, you know, it's your, it's your baby, it's your baby. It's coming from the only source you know that's likely, and then see, whoa, here at least we're seeing things as they are. This is real. This is real In an environment this is, this is a good reason to step into a cloistered environment on occasion, because then it's pretty cut and dry, that is, to say, pretty straightforward, without much argumentation. If I'm unhappy here. Then it's because of what I brought to this mind center, and not what was already here, right? And that's really honest. That's straightforward. That's real, right? So it's kind of hard to get the finger out and say, "I'm sure somebody else must be to blame here." But gosh, I'm finding a hard time. Rhonda, I know it's probably Rhonda. Don't ask me why. I had this hunch. I think it's probably just Rhonda. It's ridiculous. So this is real. This is the real world. Because here it's quite evident. If you have any kind of, if you can't sleep, it's not because the beds are too hard, <laughs> right? If you get depressed, it's not because anything environment is depressing, and anything else. You're anxious. Exactly what do you be anxious about here? You know, etc. So then you know, aha, this is real. Now I'm seeing where it's coming from, and this is what I brought with me. And as much as possible, this is what I'd like to leave here. That is, it's not going to be here. It's just going to vanish but move out of here with a le- less toxic mind. But it's so easy when we're very engaged, we're very caught up in looking outwards to spouses, family, children, work, workplace, marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as we feel unhappy about something, oh, it's because what the American Congress is doing right now, I'm just, I'm just so bugged. You know, I'm so unhappy. They've shut down the government. It's like they're a bunch of belligerent juvenile delinquents Oh, I know I'm happy. It's that Republican Party. That's what's really making me unhappy. You know, so easy because it's really happening. You know, oh, I'm I'm so unhappy. I'm so pissed. I'm so oh oh oh, and I've got a good target. You know, they done it to me. If they would just get in shape, if those Republicans would shape up, you know, put their Tea Party back into the ocean, then I could be happy. It's very easy to think that way. Until so you see, even if you didn't know about the Tea Party, you're still unhappy. So there it is, to expand this out to compassion. That's the short, that's the short thing. And when you see the mental afflictions coming up, I was referring to these internally generated disturbances, which are pretty, pretty much the only kind we experience here, then seeing, okay, well, all the other 7 billion people out there, they're also experiencing internally generated disturbances because they have mental afflictions just like we do. But just for starters, many of them, I strongly suspect, are not recognizing mental afflictions as mental afflictions. Now That's a real problem. I mean, at least we have, you know, we've got the vocabulary. We have a word, self-centeredness, and we kind of know what it means, that it's maybe not that great. And self and then self-grasping, that's a rather subtle concept, but we get, we're getting the hang of it. Let alone just the basic mental afflictions of craving and hostility. And I think, as we attend to these, it's quite obvious. This is not just some religion, or some particular philosophy, these things are really toxic. They really afflict. And you don't, need to mean, you don't need me to persuade you. You see it for yourself and then you say, aha, if there are antidotes for these basic toxins of the mind, then that's really a relief. But it really, must, I, must, I think it must be said, many people in the world don't even regard anger as a mental affliction. Only when it gets excessive. And then you need to go for anger management, not anger eradication but you know get it under control it's like a dog that you know bites you a lot and you just want it to bite you a little bit you know dog biting management oh my dog only bit me 3 times this week it was really nice i like that dog it's a good dog <laughs> you know? so anger management it's bad only if it's excessive in other words only if you stand out you know in a in a workplace of 15 people working if you're the if you're the the nasty one then that stands out and so I want to be kind of invisible so I'm no more angry and belligerent and irritable than anybody else. So manage me so I'm no worse than everybody else in the office. right? Then it's OK. But then you might, might want to go zoom a kind of wide-angle lens and say, well, how's the office? <laughs> you know? And if it looks like suddenly, oh, the whole office is toxic. I met a fellow years ago that worked in some chemical plant up in, in, in Canada, out in the countryside, out in the, out in the woods. And and he lived there. He was a serious meditator. Eventually became a monk. But he was good living, good salary, and a work that he was very good at. But he said everybody there was foul-mouthed. I mean, just all the work is just normal. Abuse, vulgarity, obscenity. It was just normal. And he lived there first before coming. He went on one retreat with me, and I think he went off to Southeast Asia became a monk. Um, But that was normal. And when he went back after being in retreat sometime, he found it unbearable that what was normal there was really toxic. So you could be foul-mouthed, belligerent, arrogant, abusive, condescending, contemptuous, and so forth. Yeah, but everybody else is. What's the big deal? I don't stand out. I don't need anger and contempt management because I'm no more contemptuous or angry or belligerent than anybody else here. In other words, the whole place was a toxic waste dump. So we know this only by contrast. And likewise, craving, hostility. You know, craving, just craving. I've never, I've never been to Wall Street. I've never been in there. I've never been hardly, I don't, maybe I've walked into an investment firm where it's just all about making money, making money, 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 money. Um, but I suspect, I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen Wall Street, the movie. That's about as close as I've gotten to it. But, you know, and greed is good. You remember Michael Douglas's statement, greed is good. Well, I don't think it's entirely fiction. There are workplaces where greed is good. That's how you get happy. How do you get happy? Lots of money and all the cool stuff you can get with money. And if you can throw in some power and status, then all the better. You know, there are places where that's normal. Mental affliction? Give me a break. This is just being human. This is being successful. You know? So, those such people, it's very easy in the first breath to be condescending. Say, well, what jerks? Boy, are they stupid. La, ba, ba, ba. And then the second breath, man. As Christians have a nice phrase for that. There, go, there but for the grace of the Lord go I. It's a nice phrase. There but for the grace of the Lord go I. That is somehow I'm fortunate enough that I'm not in that situation. Because if I were, that would be me. If I hadn't met the spiritual friends that I have, met the Dharma that I have, What's to to say that I couldn't be in that situation? And greed is good and belligerence and condescension and contempt and obscenities and so forth. Oh, this is just normal, you know, we're just being men. This is human nature after all, you know. So such people who do not recognize even mental afflictions as mental afflictions. And morality is just what you say it is. Morality is just subjective. It's just what you say it is. And the immoral is just what you can't get away with. That's such people really are worthy of compassion, above all compassion. Not condescension. As His Holiness told me when I went there, experiencing a little bit of spiritual pride when I was you know, still in my diapers, basically, when it comes to Dharma. He said, you have no grounds for feeling superior. None at all. If you came here as a beggar, you're getting a good meal. Be happy, be grateful. That's it. It's been true then, it's been ever, true ever since. I certainly wish I could say that I have no arrogance like that. It's not true. I, I do. But at least I have his holiness looking right at it. Man, it's really hard. Oh lasso. <laughs> so when you're experiencing even your own mental afflictions, rather than simply feeling beat up or man, I wish these would go away, just expand it, go to the swimming pool, go to a lake, go to the ocean, think, my goodness. All of us human beings who are still ordinary individuals, that's what it's called, ordinary individuals who are still simply suffering, not having found a path, not really on a path to liberation, we're all in the same ocean. And that can really give rise to great, great compassion, wishing, may we all be free. So then you transmute it. Commentary states that all practices of of transforming adversity into the path are designed to counteract mundane hope and fear. And as long as you indulge in mundane hope and fear, you'll not be able to transform adversities into the path. So for the moment, what we attend to is our reality. And that is, there are clearly two whole domains of well-being to which we may aspire. Many people don't even know that there are two, so they aspire for only one. And those domains are, of course, hedonic well-being. And as I've made it very, very clear, commented many times even in this last five weeks, nothing wrong with wanting to make a good living, to be in good health for yourself. your Children and so forth want to get a good education. Nothing wrong with any of that. These are the mundane desires, hedonic, the wish for hedonic well-being. Food, in in the Buddhist list, being free of debt. That's a big one. And especially nowadays, man, we forgot about that one. But the joy of being free of debt. This is the Buddhist reference to mundane happiness. Being free of debt, Having, having shelter, clothing, food, and medical care when you need it. Those are the five. He said, for mundane happiness, let's do it again. Be free of debt, because that can be, it can be torture, really torture. If you're in debt and you're really not sure you can pay it off, or you know you can't. That's when people start jumping out of buildings, right? So free of debt, having shelter, so you're not a homeless person, having clothing, having, clothing, having food, and then medical care when you need it, affordable medical care. It's very hard to be happy. It's hard to flourish, hedonically. You don't have those. And then he went on. And he said, then there's a sense of well-being that comes from ethics, from leading an ethical way of life, a harmless way of life, a life oriented around non-injury, non-violence, and benevolence, non-violence, and benevolence. And knowing that these are your, your, your North star. These are your guiding lights. This is what you navigate by. Let alone Shama, Vipassana, all that really cool stuff in meditation. Just having as a North Star, from day to day, from encounter to encounter, my guiding principles are nonviolence. Do as little injury as possible. Right? And where possible, you know, lead a benevolent way of life, an altruistic way of life. He said the well-being that comes from that, he said, I have no idea why he said this number, but he said, what was it? It was either 16 or eight time, 18 times greater than all the preceding, the hedonic well-being. Maybe he just said a whole bunch. Maybe he was implying, it was, maybe it's just kind of a, a, an, uh, what is, a symbolic number. But the sense of well-being is far greater, of actually feeling happy, feeling content, feeling your life is meaningful, that it's good. Uh, and consider that, consider that, whether that's true or not. That is, you've had all of the above. No debt or very manageable debt you know you can take care of. And then shelter, food, clothing. And by the way, nowadays we want to throw in education. Education in our world, that's pretty indispensable. Education for yourself and your children. Then finally, medical care. Imagine you got all of those nailed, all of those taken care of, but your way of conduct is abusive, it's dishonest, it's manipulative, exploitative injurious, and so forth. So imagine you just didn't have the ethics, but you go to all the other ones, they just go on full throttle. How ha- and it's, it's a good question, isn't it? How happy would you be? I mean, you yourself. It's a hypothetical. But ethics, oh, that's, ethics is yeah. ethics, what you can get away with. Ethics is whatever you say it is. You know, This group has, the Ku Klux has their ethics. The, you know, Mao Zedong had his ethics. The ESCO must have the ethics. Oh, it's just whatever you know. Nobody really knows. It's just what philosophers say. This uh, there's a neurobiologist, social biologist, a sociobiologist that said ethics is really all just about a biology. Bring the scientists in; they'll find they'll find out what's really ethical. It's all about a matter of biology. This is a very famous man. He gets quoted a lot. You know. Again, I have no interest in naming names, but there are a lot of ideas out there. Uh, or ethics is just, again just whatever you make it is. It's simply subjective. So there are many people there in when that mode. So if you try to kind of jump into somebody else's shoes, into somebody else's position, and imagine yourself where all of the externals, all the hedonic, is all taken care of, but no ethics, how happy would you be? So the Buddha said, well, actually, you're far happier. A person is far happier. You know, the quality of happiness, of well-being, that's a nice word, far greater. If there's that, that clear awareness, that clear, he said, it's the, the happiness of blameless, blamelessness, clear conscience clear consciousness, that knowing what I'm bringing to the world is good, not something to regret. He so said, much, much greater happiness from that. And that's, that's your eudaimonia. That's your genuine happiness stemming from ethics. Then you go into samadhi, you start developing among the three trainings. The higher training is samadhi, which includes the four immeasurables. It includes shamatha. It includes bodhicitta, etc. So if we just focus just on, well, bodhicitta or shamatha, you know, two different times, but the, now the level of happiness. I mean, how was it that Gen Lam Rimbik could say two of the happiest years of his life was when he was living on 10 kilos of brown flour, living under a rock. And so, oh, those were the, those were the days. You know, those were the days. No debt. No debt. He had shelter. Good rock. He had clothing. had at least probably two sets of robes. So when you need, you know, you have to wash one. You don't have to go around naked. He had his ten kilos of atta, what atta? Brown flour? What more do you want? And then he was in good health, so he didn't need health care. And he had wonderful, well, he was there all for the sake of education. He was there living under his rot because of the Dharma guidance he could receive. Uh, and so all of his five concerns were needed, mundane concerns were needed. Because he's a very good monk living an ethical life, and so happy, so content, so carefree. And I've known it, that's an extreme case, but I know I know a, a broad spectrum there. Where well, this just turns out to be the case. Kind of like the mystery of happiness has cracked. It's cracked open. It's revealed. We figured we figured out. You know, we figured it out. That it's helpful to have sufficient for those five. But what really brings the happiness, the happiness of ethics, the happiness of sam- samadhi, much deeper. Much, much deeper. And then finally, the happiness of vipassana, of insight. Pull. Then you're really maxing out. So, these two domains of happiness to which we strive, the mundane, the hedonistic, the eudaimonic of genuine happiness. What, is, what the, the author, Atisha, really stems from Atisha, is saying is that all these practices for transforming adversity into the path, transforming, is to overcome the fixation, kind of the tunnel vision of the pursuit of mundane happiness or hedonic well-being. Because insofar as, again, this is a gradient, it's not like you just stop one and start another one. It's a gradient. But again, more, the more we start shifting the priority to if, you, if one of these had to go, your ethics, your samadhi, and your wisdom, and the, the, the genuine happiness that arises from that, or your money, it's at, you know, your, your house, et cetera, et cetera, if one of these had to go, or one, if, one of these, if one of these could really not only have to go, but on the positive side, if one of these could really go up, you could have a much nicer house, much nicer clothes, much better insurance program, et cetera. You know. Or you could do better in shamatha, the four measurables, or the four thoughts that turn the mind. But if you could really be wonderfully successful, live on one of those really fantastic houses with a really cool car, etc., cetera, um, where, where are you going to go? You know. Which would you prefer? And the whole point of Dharma practice is not to dismiss the hedonic because it is important, but the shift goes over there. So for Gellan, I remember the hedonic was quite satisfied with his rock, etc., and he was truly happy. And so, but insofar as we're still banking on that, we're leaning, tilting over that, then when adversity strikes, uh, the, adver- the adversity is hedonic, and it's almost certain that we'll not be able to transform it. Because if what you really want is hedonic well-being, and you're getting hedonic suffering, you just want it to stop. And that becomes the highest priority. That becomes it. You know, because that's where your values are. That's where your priority is. And so what he's suggesting here is just an overall shift in priority. Not bad versus good, good versus evil, but shift priority. The more you're focusing on your highest priority being the pursuit of genuine happiness for, your sake, for yourself and others, the transformation of all experiences into the path, as that becomes more and more a top priority, the hedonic less a priority, then you're really in a position when hedonic adversity comes along and say, okay, grist for the mill, come on in, let's see how we transform that. Whereas if the primary, primary emphasis is on hedonic, well, you can't transform it, you just want it to go away. And then you just get bummed out when it happens. Or you get really elated when you get some hedonic pleasure. So everything hinges on that. What do you really want? What's your priority? And overcoming the mon- mundane hopes and fears and shifting this desperation. Now, one of you, again, I very overall, pretty much uniformly, I generally uh, really enjoy our one-on-one one-on-one meetings. I I learn a lot. And uh, one of you asked some time ago, uh, what's this emphasis about giving up hope? You know, here he is. Give up hope and fear. Give up hope and fear. In the settling the mind, its natural state. Give up hope and fear. Isn't wait a minute? Isn't hope a good thing? I mean, isn't that a good thing? Like love and charity and hope. Isn't that one of the good ones? And isn't the opposite being hopeless? And that means forlorn, apathetic, listless, dismayed, empty, I'm hopeless. Right? Well, it's all a matter of definition. This is not Christianity versus Buddhism. It's simply a matter of definition. But for exa- So let's unpack that just a little bit, because I think, in fact, it's very important. Uh, when it comes to hedonic hope and fear, versus your dedication to practice. That's pretty straightforward. I hope I get this raise. I hope that woman will marry me. I hope I get this car, that education. I hope this doesn't happen. I fear this will happen. That's pretty straightforward. There's nothing evil about it, but it does tend to totally invite us into a fixation on those kind of things, which then dharma is for for later when this issue is is dealt with. Uh, But when it comes to dharma, when it comes to dharma, it's a matter of definition when we say, you know give up all hope, because it never says, but the teachings I've received for 43 years that never say, give up all aspiration. If you give up all aspiration, you give up renunciation, for starters. Because that's not only a disillusionment with samsara, but it's a clear aspiration, a movement toward liberation. Right. So there's really powerful aspiration. The Buddha said, as if your hair is on fire. You have the big aspiration as your hair on fire. Get the hair out. You know, get the, put the fire out. And so I've never heard the statement, have no aspirations. But we do hear, especially in the context of Dharma, now that you're settling the mind in its natural state, give up hope. Give up hope. So is it only internal? That is, when you're practicing salami just in the moment, give up hope that your practice will turn out this way and not that way. Teachings of Lerap Lingba in his one-page explanation of settling the mind in its natural state. Give up hope and fear and just do the practice. I think that makes it kind of transparent. That's the way your practice will go best. Because as soon as you're hung up in hope and fear, that's actually already obstructing your practice, because you're thinking about what may or may not happen in the future, whereas while you're on the cushion, you should be just doing the practice. And if you're thinking about the future, then you're not doing the practice, which means you're not going to achieve yamot, right? But I think, you're re- I, think I, I'm not, did, I didn't tell in this retreat, when Gyatronaba cho- told me when I was doing a six-month retreat on settling the mind, and he said, Alan, you're practicing with too, too much desire. And he clarified and said, too much desire for the fruit, the fruition, like that. Um, but I did come back. I don't think I shared this the other day when I mentioned this very brief story. I said, but what about all those aspirations? I mean, I know a fair amount of Tibetan Buddhist literature. There's all kinds of prayers to the, the lineage of gurus and so forth, calling upon the, the blessings, blessings of, all the, of the Buddha, the great Bodhisattvas, and the whole lineage of gurus, right down to your own guru. Please bless me with this practice. May all obstacles to the practice be dispelled. May blessings arise so that I may swiftly experience the fruition of the practice. They're all over the place. There's lots of prayers like that. And so, so then I, I went right back to Rinpoche and I said, well, you've just told me to practice with less desire on the one hand. On the other hand, we have all these prayers of aspiration. And bodhicitta itself is an aspiration. May I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. So Rinpoche, please explain. You told me I'm practicing with too much desire. On the other hand, Bodhichitta is a great big desire, right? So so, what? And he said, oh yeah, those prayers, lineage prayers, Bodhichitta and all of that. You do that between sessions. Between sessions. But he didn't say hope. He said aspire, yearn for, long for. And so this is now in the, really very much in the context of dharma. And that is something like, let's take one that's really solid gold. Because shamatha can conceivably be used for bad things. You'll lose it quickly, but it can be. Devadatta, the Buddha's cousin, achieved Shamatha, He achieved the fourth jhana. He was really a samadhi master. But then he turned to the dark side, you know, and became very envious of his cousin, the Buddha. And then he lost, of course, he lost the samadhi. He lost it all. Because you can't have envy and malice and so forth and maintain shamatha. Either the shamatha overcomes it, or it overcomes your shamatha. He lost his shamatha. And then he had a tough time. Um, so, But shamatha, can, in principle, can be misused for a while. And then you'll lose it. But bodhicitta, okay, bodhicitta by nature, you can't misuse that. You may not have too, enough wisdom on occasion. But you can't use bodhicitta for malevolent purposes. It right? doesn't make any sense. So take, some, take something like that that's solid gold. And imagine that you're, hopefully you are, arousing an aspiration at wish. Here is something truly noble, splendid, a profound virtue. So benevolent, so good for oneself and others to take these two motivations to achieve enlightenment, which is kind of like vertical, to ascend to perfect awakening, but also the horizontal, and that is, may I be of greatest benefit to those around me, whether animals, human beings, the elderly, the sick, Sentient beings are just struggling with mental afflictions. May I be of greater benefit. May I be of greater benefit in alleviating suffering and showing people really how to find genuine happiness. So there's two really noble aspirations. Both of them so sublime, really. And one is really kind of vertical. It's really to to tap into the depths of your own consciousness, right down to the ground, right down to Buddha nature, or to ascend to the heights of, of liberation and awakening. To my mind, that needs no defense. That is... That's meaningful. But also the wish just to alleviate suffering, even a little bit of suffering, let alone a great deal of suffering. That's noble. That needs no argument. But then Bodhicitta combines these two aspirations into may I achieve awakening in order to be of greatest possible benefit. So now, t- to my mind, those are the two most sublime hum- uh, sublime aspirations a person can experience and cultivate. The aspiration for transcendence, no reality as it is and the aspiration to be of service. Because people really care, people, sentient beings, really care about the suffering they experience and the happiness they'd love to experience. And we can help. So taking those two, those two noble aspirations, and then with this stroke of enlightened genius, integrating them into one aspiration with two parts. May I achieve awakening in order to be of greatest possible benefit. So there's something sublimely good. But it doesn't entail hope. Not as it's being refuted in this this context. It entails aspiration. But how hope is being defined here is that I hope before the eight-week retreat is over, I will have achieved uncontrived bodhicitta. And if I don't, it could be such a bummer. I hope I will have achieved the fourth stage in shamatha. I came here hoping I'd achieve the fourth stage. Oh, I think I'm not going to make it. It's got a time limit to it. I hope I achieve it in Santa Barbara, not in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, not in Santa Barbara. When we we concretize it, we localize it, may I achieve it there, may I achieve it by then, we lock in with grasping and a time and a place. I hope this happens, and we lock in. That's where the problem is. And And the fist always comes out. That's a grasping. That's the grasp. And we're set up for disappointment. We're set up for anxiety. Oh, maybe it won't happen. Maybe I won't progress fast enough. Maybe, maybe, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. And now we're caught in vacillating doubt and uncertainty and so forth, anxiety. And so that's what hope is like, the light, and, and anxiety is the shadow. you know. But this is hope with grasping. That's the short answer. Hope, when it says, be without hope, it means be without hope that's entangled with grasping. And let the aspiration soar. Whether it takes three countless eons, okay, three countless eons of meaningful lives, moving towards enlightenment, I can handle that. Bring it on. What's, What's the problem? This is Shantideva. He said, what's the problem? You're just going to be going from one meaningful life to another, ascending along a path of greater joy, greater bliss, greater meaning. And so if it's three countless eons, what's your problem? I mean, what's so bad about that? And at three countless eons, the Dalai Lama said, I have some really bad news, so brace yourself. But the Dalai Lama said, on that sutrayana path, you may not be finished after three countless eons. It may take seven. You know? So you, you, know, you click through your three countless eons and say, oh, <laughs> oh, I did my three, th- three countless eons and I'm still not there. Yeah, you may have another four. You know? <laughs> so the grasping only comes when you put down these here and, t- you know, the grasping, just that. Aspiration, let it be wide open as a sky. Shamatha, if the cultivation of shamatha as a means to, because it clearly is a means to an end, as a means to developing insight that radically transforms and liberates, as a means to developing deeper compassion, loving kindness, and all of this leading to knowing who you are, realizing rikpa. I, I think I can be quite honest and candid in saying that to my mind, what I've just described, that's worth doing no matter how long it takes. Period. You know. And that gives a certain confidence, a certain settledness, a certain lack of anxiety when you're practicing. If you have that confidence, I'm practicing as well as I can. I'd love to be able to practice better and one day or next, next session, whatever, maybe I will. But right now I'm doing as well as I can. And this is on a path that is simply meaningful already, and I know it. And no matter how long it takes, this is it. Count me in. I'm all in. This is it. I feel that way. I feel that way. That everything else kind of falls off to the side. There it is. There's a path here. It's sublime. It's meaningful. It's authentic. It's good. It's benevolent. Okay? However long it takes. Count me in. That's it. I I like the poker phrase, I'm all in. I'm banking on this. Because this one can't fail. Can't lose on this one. The progress may go slow. Oh, well, I can't control that. It may go bumpy. Can't control that either. But it's going in the right direction. And that's all that matters. You know, aspiration, aspiration. So they're not hoping. Not, not, be, be good. Oh, will it be in this lifetime? Ah, oh, who knows? Maybe, I'm gonna, maybe my lifetime is going to last for 15 more seconds and I'm going to keel over with a stroke. Who knows? So this lifetime turns out to be <laughs> a few seconds. You know, don't, get, you know, don't get your hopes up. You never know. That's what I'm flicking my fingers for every time I come up here. This could be my last drama talk. Let's be okay. You know? He says, okay for me. Finito. You know? So whole lifetime. Well, maybe it's already over. You know, Click off a couple more breaths. Kenze Rinpoche, on this, exactly this point. This is really beautiful. Dingo Kenze His Holiness is primary guru for Dzogchen. He says, in his commentary to this same text and this aphorism, he says, eventually by the power of bodhicitta, as that aspiration really floods your heart, fills your mind, becomes your prime directive. He said, eventually by the power of bodhicitta, we'll be free even from the hope of accomplishing bodhicitta and the fear of not doing so. So there is clearly hope and fear involving grasping, that it will rise so strongly that any hope, oh, will I achieve it? How long will it take? Maybe I won't achieve it. Maybe ba-ba-ba, just vanishes. The bodhicitta kind of takes over, takes over. And then a nice little aphorism from Langaritambha. It said, by training the mind in this way with regard to friends and enemies, the crooked tree of the mind is made straight. So you straighten out. The Tibetan, there's a term you probably know, rishi, like maharishi, a contemplative adept, great sage. It's a Sanskrit term. Um, the Tibetan term, it's very nice, It's a direct translation from Rishi. In Tibetan, it's dang song. Not very well known. No, nobody knows it unless you speak Tibetan. But dang song has a really nice etymology. So it means straight, straight. Dang means straight. And song means straight. It means you're really straight. Right? Not, nothing crooked, nothing devious, nothing tricky, no strings attached, just straight. Good. So I wanted to end on this note. No, I don't I want to see any comments or questions, insights, observations, realizations. Anything from your side? Anything coming up? We have about 10 minutes. And if not, then I'll download the next point. This is the quietest group I've had in all the seven retreats I've had. <laughs> Maybe just because I've overwhelmed you with my verbiage. I don't know. Okay, I'll share one more point. whole issue of transformation Again, like being a transmutation, like being spiritual alchemist, which is really the very essence of Lojong altogether. It <clears throat> really occurred to me in meditation this afternoon. Some clear levels or dimensions of such transformation. I'll put this away. Get it out of the way. So adversity strikes. Something. Happens that you don't like. Whatever it is. They're not serving the kind of salad dressing you like. Whatever. And so when adversity strikes, our way of transmuting adversity so that it no longer arises, adversity, so it no longer bothers us, keep it really vernacular here. So it's not what I wanted. Well, big deal. Life happens. What can you do? You know, we just shrug it off. No big deal. The first kind of elementary approach to that, I would say psychological. And I do not, do, 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 not mean, do not mean anything derogatory or dismissive there. It's right on the level of the psyche. That's what I mean, right on the level of the psyche. We all have one. And so we use now the vernaculars. Hey, it happened. Make the best of it. Or deal with it. Hey, stop getting flustered. What are you getting so upset about? Just deal with it. Make the best of it. Make lemonade out of your lemon. See the silver lining around the cloud. Deal with it. Come on, get over it. Don't be all so topsy turvy. Just deal with it. That's it. And these are really simple words, but they're really meaningful. They're really, you know, that's what's happening. So make the best of it. You know. So there's one level. It's, that's psychology, and it's really good, not so common sense, because we often are not very commonsensical. We're getting flustered when we could just be dealing with it. Um, that wonderful phrase from, in this, and exactly in this regard, from Shantideva. So you're getting a lot of Shantideva, and I think we'll have a little bit of him solo later on towards the retreat, but we'll see. But uh, that phrase, many of you know it already, but it's, it's re- worth remembering every day. And that is when something unpleasant happens, something that you don't care for. He said, Well, he said, if there's something you can do about it, remember? If there's something you could do about it, then why be unhappy? You, know, you, make it, you, can't, you have enough power, you have, the, you have the wherewithal to actually fix it so that what you find unpleasing is gone. Then why be upset? Why be, a, a, why be disturbed? Why at all? Just fix it. You know. On the other hand, if some adversity comes up, something you don't like, that's all it means, and there's nothing you can do about it, then why be upset? Because you're already upset. The adversity already came, and now it's kind of like you're telling reality, the adversity's come. That makes me a bit unhappy. But now I want to be more unhappy. I want to add to what reality dished up. And so I want to be unhappy about it. And exactly how is that helping? Well, it's not, but that's what I do. So it's good, grounded, wise, common sense. If something comes up and you can do something about it, just do it. But don't bother to be unhappy. And if there's nothing, to, nothing you can do about it, then accept it. Why be unhappy? Just say, hey, that's, that's what happens. Reality happens. That's it. So that's on that first level, the psychological level. Okay? And we can really linger there. There's a, a lot of, there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that we can release just by re- remembering a, a simple aphorism like that. If there's something you can do about it, do it. If not, then accept it. Big deal. The second one goes much deeper. And that is bringing in whatever insight you have in terms of ultimate bodhicitta. That if it's true, and this is a really deep one. It goes so deep. But if it's true that nothing exists independently of the conceptual designation of it existing as such, if the very existence of something, it seems so counterintuitive, it is profoundly counterintuitive, but if the existence of something doesn't take place, if something doesn't come into existence without the conceptual designation of it, suddenly you as the observer participant in your world in which you're in the center, because all you have to do is turn your head in all directions, you see who's in the center of your world. There's only one person there. Everybody else is on the concentric circles around but you are in the center and you are the observer participant who is co-creating your world from moment to moment as your karma, so to speak or whatever you want to call it let's say karma as your karma is dishing up these appearances appearances to the five physical senses appearances to your mind and so forth and then you're making the objects that have those appearances as their attributes then you say, aha in other words, they're not already designating themselves, they're not objectifying themselves, they're not already absolutely in and of themselves prior to my way of viewing them, my way of designating, labeling, considering them. Are you serious? If that's the case, then we'll make it really practical really quickly. Something is an adversity, if and only if you, from your perspective, this is very important, something is an adversity for you, if and only if you designate it as such. If you don't, then it's just an illness. It's just bad weather. It's just a stomach ache. It's just a loss of money. It's just a loss of reputation, or whatever. It's just that. But if you say loss of reputation, loss of reputation, people think now less of you. You've lost your friends. People think less of you. OK, if that's how you do de- but now is that a misfortune or is it not a misfortune? Oh, that's up to you. Right? Yemen yeah, lost his country, as many Tibetans did. He lost his country. He had to flee. Otherwise, he probably would have been in prison with the other monks. So he lost his country. Was that a misfortune as far as he was concerned? Well, no, he was a happy monk living under his rock. And he had these great teachers that probably would have lived, you know, hundreds of miles away otherwise in Tibet. It's a big country. Whereas here in northern India, that's where most of the lamas were for quite some time. Or, as you well know, Barshi, That was a really intense one, my teacher for the seven-point mind training. You remember the story. What everybody else would say, man, what a tragedy. We feel such compassion for you. We're so profoundly sorry for you. You lost your homeland. You lost your home. You lost your children. One of your children committed suicide. Other children shot. You lost everything. You're living in this little hovel that would be considered way below the poverty line in America. You'd have, you'd have social workers coming and piling in to try to help you if you were living in like a little hovel like that in America. And you're living on $30 a month for you and your wife. Oh, man, we, feel, we so feel for you. And there he's saying, oh, this is a blessing for me. you know. From his perspective, this is all a blessing. And why? So simply, hedonically, 100% sucks. There was no good side to that. There was no plus at all, hedonically, right? Where was the good side to that? Where was the silver lining around that cloud? No, no silver lining at all. It all sucked. But Dharma-wise, he had a much deeper, transformative, enriching, satisfying, meaningful Dharma practice in his little tiny hut on $30 a month than he did when he was an aristocrat with multiple estates. Because there it was just too easy, as he said. Too easy, so comfortable, everything so easy. Everything's going my way, little deva realm in Tibet. So there's the second level of you're transforming adversity by shifting your whole view on it. For that, you must know something about genuine happiness and Dharma, otherwise, you won't be able to do it. But you're shifting. You're viewing differently, you're conceptually designating it differently, you're transmuting the world, not only your, and this is a very crucially important point. You're transforming not only your attitude. You're transforming not only the way you're viewing reality. By shifting the way you're viewing reality, by shifting the way you're designating reality, you're shifting the reality that you're experiencing. It's not two things slapped together, which is the view of metaphysical realism. The world's absolutely out there. It's just happening. No. The world is rising to meet you from moment to moment, conceptual designation to designation, appearance to appearance. It's rising to meet you. In this ocean of potentiality, from moment to moment, opportunities are rising. And the question is, how will you designate it? That's not determined by karma. How are you designate it, you can't say, oh, I designated that as karma because of something I did in my past life. Sorry, but maybe the word is bullshit? Complete false. That's not true. You're not a robot. You're not pre programmed. You have to designate this way. You have to designate. No, not, not true. Not true at all. That's your choice. That's one of the most meaningful choices we can make. How, this is happening to you. You had no choice. You get sick, a child dies, you lose your job, adversity strikes in a myriad of ways. That wasn't your choice. How do you designate it? How do you view it? If you have some insight into the emptiness of inherent nature of that which is rising up to meet you, then you know you really are co-creator. You can shape the, your world and not only your view of the world, in which case you actually experience it differently because it is different for you, because you're designating it differently. That's beyond psychology. It doesn't violate psychology. That's going deep. That's really going deep. And he starts right out there. After the four thoughts that turn the mind and shamatha, getting your mind useful, he goes right into that deep end of the pool. This is a way to profoundly, profoundly transform. So really you are. Shaping your reality, shaping your experience. Your mind is becoming dharma because that's how you're designating everything that arises to you from moment to moment, day to day, decade to decade, transmuted all into dharma because you choose to do so. And you have that freedom to choose. So I'll end on a really nice, ni- nice light note, but it's not trivial. Uh, an author, who I've, I've read a number of his books and all of them with great enjoyment, is the Jewish writer Isaac Bashevik Bachev- Singer. Isaac Singer. Marvelous, marvelous novelist. I don't read novels much anymore, but I used to re- read some, and he were very, very good. And uh, very intelligent man, very insightful man. So I recommend Isaac, uh, Isaac Singer's novels. Um, but he, it, it is said, this is, a, this is a story. I imagine it's probably true. Why not? And he was asked, Mr. Singer, uh, do you believe in re- free will? And he says, of course. Do I have any choice? Enjoy your day, evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning.